Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm your host, Adrian Baker. Today, I have an awesome conversation for you. It was easily some of the most fun that I've had since doing this podcast, and it was one of the more stimulating and engaging and entertaining conversations I've had on a personal or professional level in a very long time. To those of you who are interested in psychedelics, Dennis McKenna is not someone who needs any introduction. But for those of you who are not familiar with him, let me give you a little sense of his background. The professional and personal interests of Dennis McKenna, PhD, are centered on the interdisciplinary study of ethnopharmacology and plant hallucinogens. He received his doctorate in 1984 from the University of British Columbia, where his doctoral research focused on ethnopharmacological investigations of the botany, chemistry, and pharmacology of ayahuasca and ukihe, I hope I said that right, Dennis, two orally active tryptamine-based hallucinogens used by indigenous peoples in the Northwest Amazon. He is a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute and serves on the advisory board of nonprofit organizations in the fields of ethnobotany and botanical medicines. At the Hefter Research Institute, he continues his focus on the therapeutic uses of psychoactive medicines derived from nature and used in indigenous ethnomedical practices. We touched on a number of topics, mostly of them including psychedelics, and I certainly wanted to tap into Dennis's expertise in ayahuasca, so we certainly went deeper on that realm. And it's good timing, really piggybacking off the last episode with Rachel Harris. So for those of you in the audience who either wanted to learn about ayahuasca or just wanted to go deeper in your knowledge about it, these episodes back to back are hopefully a great resource for you and hopefully just a source of entertainment and you learn a few new things if you're already very familiar with ayahuasca. So we talked about ayahuasca a lot, but... You know, we also had a comparative discussion of ayahuasca and psilocybin and mushrooms, since that's certainly also a field of expertise for Dennis as well as as his late brother Terrence, and did kind of a comparative analysis of other psychedelics and talked about what's the relative benefits and limitations of using those and, and when we should use those, you know, perhaps given a particular therapeutic or spiritual or personal growth intention. We also talked about not only psychedelics, though we touched on organized religion and some of the problems there. Dennis and I definitely had a lot of common ground on that topic, and I'm glad that we had a chance to touch on that. I hope that you enjoy this conversation. I feel and hope that many of you will. It's really, I can't emphasize enough, something that I enjoyed so much. And I'm so grateful that Dennis, who is a very busy guy and has demands on him to make appearances on some very popular shows, made time to come on this show. So thank you, Dennis. I'm truly, truly grateful for your time. And I really enjoyed our conversation. And I also want to make a plug before I segue to our conversation. And I'm going to include Dennis's events in the show notes as well. And you can find links to his website and his upcoming events there. So it'll be no problem. But I just want to point out 
a couple of cool opportunities that Dennis has coming up. In particular, what's really neat is that Dennis organizes ayahuasca retreats in the Sacred Valley in Peru twice a year. He's got a couple of them coming up in January, and he said that he'll be doing some more in the summer, probably either in July or August. And I just think that would be a phenomenal experience for anyone who is interested in working with ayahuasca to be able to go on a retreat with someone as experienced as Dennis and who'd have so much wisdom to share in the integration circles the next day and helping to prepare people. And he works with a fantastic local shaman as well who holds the space. So I'll be providing the link to that opportunity as well as to some other ones he has coming up. But I just want to highlight that for people in advance and say, please be sure to check out the show notes because that's a really unique opportunity that some of you might want to take advantage of. So all of that said, thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And now I give you my conversation with Dennis McKenna. Well, Dennis, let me just start by thanking you so much for coming on the show. I've certainly been a big fan of yours for a while, and so I really appreciate you making the time to speak with me. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd love to start out, you know, just for those folks, I'm sure most of our listeners are probably very familiar with who you are as well as your brother Terrence, but if you could just share a little bit about your background and how you became interested in psychedelics. Okay. Well, if I have to put a label on myself, sometimes I say I'm an ethnopharmacologist. So that means I study, well, there are various definitions, but basically I study medicines from the point of view of indigenous people or, you know, their use in traditional contexts. And of course, it was psychedelics that got me into all this in the first place, because like my brother, I was a child of the 60s and we grew up in a period of cultural turmoil, political turmoil. And the only game in town at the time really was LSD. And we were interested in that and and sort of caught up in that, as were a lot of our contemporaries. But we early on became interested in DMT. And DMT was very rare at the time. This was 67, 68, 69. There wasn't much of it around. But Terrence was able to work the matrix and get it. And we both agreed that it was quite astonishing and, you know, by far more interesting than anything else on our radar at the time, including all the, you know, political turmoil and everything else. You know, as well as the various drugs that were floating around, DMT seemed to be an order of magnitude different and more bizarre and and therefore more fascinating. You know, it had the character of, you know, a place rather than a drug. And that was interesting to us, being old, saying that, well, we were not old at the time, we were quite young, but being science fiction fans and interested in all of that, you know, other dimensions and so on. So we were fascinated by, you know, it was DMT that was really the the siren song that got us to 
go down the rabbit hole, so to speak. Right. So I've heard you talk about how what really sparked your interest in taking this trip down to South America was to experience DMT in a more extended state. And you'd heard about ayahuasca and DMT was so powerful, but you felt you were just beginning to explore it when the trip would end. And one thing I've heard you mentioned about that trip to the Amazon is that you really were motivated to learn more about ayahuasca, yet what you ended up really discovering the power of was psilocybin mushrooms. And so I'd love to hear you share with folks just a bit about that journey and what you ended up learning about not only ayahuasca, but also mushrooms. Well, actually at the time, this was 1971, at the time we didn't really know and nobody knew or the the whole role of the admixture plants, the DMT containing admixture plants with ayahuasca was not really well understood. And we had our radar up for ayahuasca, but what we were looking for was actually a plant called ukuhe, which was a preparation made from varolas. Varola is a member of the nutmeg family. And in many indigenous tribes in the Amazon, the sap of varola, there are many species, is full of DMT and 5-methoxy DMT, and many tribes make snuff out of out of varola. And so, like anything, not in you know, so it has a, also a short duration of action. We stumbled on a paper by Richard Schultes called Varola as an orally active hallucinogen and in the Harvard Botanical Museum leaflets. And we thought at the time, this might be the secret. This might be the holy grail in a sense that it might be a prolonged experience with DMT. And that's what we were looking for. We, we thought if we could spend more time in that state, we could learn more about it, essentially. Very naive idea. So we went looking for ukuhe. Ayahuasca was not really in our crosshairs that much, you know, at that time. And the role of the admixture plants in ayahuasca hadn't really been definitively figured out at that point. So we went after ukuhe. And the reason we went to La Chirera is because that was where the Witoto, that was their ancestral home. So we, you know, decided we had needed to go there. And when we ended up at La Chirera, which was a long and arduous trip in many ways, but when we finally got there, we encountered mushrooms everywhere in the pastures around this little mission village. And we had been cautioned by an anthropologist who was studying the Witoto in, in the village downriver from where we had crossed over to the other river. We went over a, a trail between one village and another. And Dr. Collier, Horatio Collier at, at the previous village was, you know, studying the Witoto. And he was quite appalled when we showed up. This was something you couldn't exactly send a text about in those days. And basically he said, you you know, you can't go there and just start talking about Ukuhe. It's a huge secret. They're going to, they'll probably kill you. 
and you know you're not supposed to know about it not even nobody even but the shamans are supposed to know about this and we were very cavalier about it yeah i think it was a bit of an overreaction you know but we said okay whatever doc you know we'll be careful and and we went on down the trail and we got to la Chirera. and you know even though we'd sort of blown him off we actually took his advice kind of seriously and and so we didn't just go in and start asking around about Ukuhe. We took our time. But in the meantime, these mushrooms were there. And, you know, the, it was a little mission village. The mushrooms were basically growing out of every cow pie. We must have hit the top of the season because they were most abundant. And we knew what they were. We had no experience with them previously just one very light encounter which when we found someone on the way in in another village that we that was our debarkation point we found some but just a few and it was a very light dose so but at La Chirera they were everywhere they were big beautiful and quite strong you know so that's how we got into it and, you know, if you're familiar with the story, it was like, you know, all concerns about finding Ukuhe or any of these other things quickly went by the wayside <laughs> because we started eating these mushrooms rather casually, not really taking them seriously, but they took us seriously and they began to download a lot of very peculiar ideas information and so on and it became clear that we had couched our quest in terms of locating the secret or searching for the secret well it became very clear that these were the secret you know and ukuhe when we did eventually find it proved to be quite disappointing it was active but it was not the perfect orally active form of DMT that we have been hoping for. In fact, that's what mushrooms are. And if you know, as, as I know you do, you know about their chemistry, their pharmacology. Mushrooms are the perfect orally active form of DMT. The molecule, the active molecule, psilocin, 4-hydroxy-DMT, which psilocybin is like a holding, a prodrug, what pharmacologists call a prodrug, that is converted to psilocin in the body very easily. That's what hits the receptors. That's where the rubber meets the road. And psilocin is only one atom different, really, from DMT. Psilocin is 4-hydroxy DMT. And that trivial difference molecular difference makes it orally active interesting and can you kind of give people an overview of how that compares to other psychedelics and and i'm wondering specifically is psilocybin then the most similar in terms of the molecular structure and you think therefore the experience to dmt as opposed to say lsd or mescaline yes because it's so close to DMT and structure, the phenomenology is very similar. So in what you might call the classical psychedelics, DMT, psilocybin, LSD, and mescaline, 
So mescaline, all of these except mescaline are indoles, right? They're indole derivatives. And so they have a similarity in structure. Mescaline is the outlier. Mescaline is a phenethylamine. So its structure is actually closer to stimulants like amphetamine and things like ephedrine and these sort of natural stimulants. But those things work mostly on the dopamine receptors. Mescaline, even though it's a phenethylamine, it works primarily on serotonin, as all these things do. All these, what I like to call the true psychedelics, they all work on this one sub type of serotonin receptor called the 5H2 serotonin is chemically 5-hydroxytryptamine. So 5-HT2A receptors are one of about 14 different types of serotonin receptors, which are all over the the body and the brain. It's not confined to the brain. But the 2A receptors are the target for the classic psychedelics. And then so you've got mescaline, which structurally is not an indole, but it still hits the 2A receptors primarily. And then in this indole family, you've got LSD, DMT, psilocin, the active form of psilocybin, other tryptamine derivatives like 5-methoxy, DMT, bufotenin, and so on. All of these are indoles. All of these are more or less a family. Even LSD you could think of as a tryptamine derivative in a certain way. The others are much more much more simple. I don't know if your audiences are, are chemists or not, but you know, if I use the term indole alkylamine, they're indoles with two carbon side chain and a nitrogen at the end of it. So they're very similar structurally and very similar in terms of their effect. In fact, it it's not really an exaggeration to talk about a tryptamine dimension in a certain way, which is certainly how we experience when we when we first started taking mushrooms, in the sense that, you know, if you're familiar with the effects of, say, mescaline or any of these things, if you're experienced, you're not going to mistake mescaline for LSD or psilocybin. You know, you're not going to mistake LSD for psilocybin. They are qualitatively different and yet similar, but different enough that you can tell them apart. But they're all part of this family of very simple indole structures. And as a result, they're quite widespread in nature. They occur in many, many plants. DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT are not uncommon at all in plants because they're only two steps away from tryptophan, which is universal tryptophan is an amino acid that is found in all organisms it's one of the 20 that make up proteins right so tryptophan is everywhere and dmt is almost everywhere i guess you could say there are many many plants that contain it in fact i would go so far as to suggest that all plants may contain dmt but most you know don't contain enough to to be useful but there are certainly tens of thousands of species that do contain high amounts of dmt far more than are utilized in indigenous traditions 
and the thing is, as we know, as we'll probably get into, DMT is not orally active, right? If you take it without a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, it is not effective. So that's the secret of ayahuasca. You take it together with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor that inhibits its breakdown in the gut and allows it to become orally active. Right. You know, one thing I want to really pick on a word you use when you talked about mushrooms is you, you discussed the download, you know, that you were getting from these. And it's a word that it's obviously popular, you know, in this day and age with technology, but there is something about psychedelic experience. And we can argue some in particular where people really feel that they're getting an incredible download of information from this sort of intelligence. You know, it's not only, some would argue, you know, an experience of your own consciousness, but it really is interfacing with another form of intelligence. And, and people say this about mushrooms. I hear people really say it a lot about ayahuasca. And so I'm curious if you can kind of discuss a little bit, what do you think is similar in terms of the ayahuasca and psilocybin download and what is unique and different about those two experiences? Well, I think, yeah, there are similarities between psilocybin and ayahuasca, which is not surprising because in ayahuasca, the, the psychedelic part of it is DMT. And there are similarities with psilocybin and DMT I would say they're more similar than they are different, but they present in a different way. Many people with ayahuasca and mushrooms, in fact, have this sense of being in contact with an entity, an intelligence, you know, some sort of thing that is not you, you know, uh, another intelligence that you're in communication with. I think we have to be careful that is the impression that one has. That does not necessarily mean that that's what's Absolutely. happening. Absolutely. You know, yeah. I mean, it may be part of the self. I mean, the sort of reductionist approach to it would be, well, it is part of the self that is presenting back to you, the perceiver, as though it were not you, as though it were a separate entity. Maybe it is, and maybe it isn't. I mean, it's very hard to say, you know, in the experience and i don't know how you would nail it down to say one thing or another more importantly is the information that it's transmitting useful or nonsense or what many people feel like the information is does make sense and it is important and so we can go with that and we we don't really have to worry too much about I mean, maybe we should, but we don't really have, you know, we don't really have to answer the question, does this come from some deep part of the self, some part of the self so deeply buried that we can't even recognize that it's the self, or does it actually come from some entity who is not within us and, and who knows where it is? You know, because you get into these discussions of, well, it's out there somewhere. Well, these words lose their meaning in a psychedelic state. What do you mean by out there? What do you mean by in here? You know, these are terms that we use all the time. 
without thinking much about them, but they become relevant here because, I mean, one thing that psychedelics do is they make us aware of or they remind us that these terms that we throw about so casually really have a meaning and they force us to think about it, you know, inside, outside, you know, is there such a thing, <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, because our experience of whatever of consciousness is always mediated, whether we're on drugs or not, it's always mediated through this neural interface that we have, you know, every experience of consciousness is in part a reflection of our neurochemistry, you know, and, and you probably heard in my lectures, I'm fond of saying we're made of drugs. You know, we are engines that run on drugs. And if you think about it, that's true. You know, we're biochemical machines that run on hormones and neurotransmitters and enzymes and all of these sig signal transduction molecules. And the brain is very adept at essentially taking information in from outside, assuming there is really an outside, filtering it through that sensory neural interface, combining it with things we know inside associative processes, memories and dreams and, you know, linguistic associations and all these things. And somehow the brain mashes it all together and turns it into a more or less comprehensible experience of being. But it's it's the serotonin high in a certain way, or it is it's a construct that our brains create that we inhabit. It's not really reality. It's a model of reality. So, you know, we assume that it's a reflection of, of a reality out there that's not part of ourselves, but we never encounter that. All we have to work with is our model. So then it gets from the you know phenomenological point of view it gets it gets dicey you know and we have to completely revise or or think more clearly about the words that we employ to describe these things you know because people will say well you know i in a deep psilocybin trance i you know, saw this many-headed alien who told me many different things. Was that real? Well, the answer is yes, of course it was real because you experienced it, right? Anything we experience is real. You know, that's the datum, that's the raw datum of consciousness. Is it really out there? Is there somewhere in some dimension a many-headed hydrant-like alien that's, that's you know, laid down this rap to us? Well, possibly, but we can't really say. All we can say, I guess the point of all this rapping is we have the data of our experience. So experience is real in the sense that we experience it. So we start there. And then from there, we can talk all day about whether it's really there or not. The experience is there. That cannot be denied. Well, let's talk about what 
in terms of the download itself until we sort of jump to what to make of these experiences and what we think we're interfacing with. What do you think, and this can just be phrased in the form of intuition, acknowledging what we can know and not know for certain, but what is your conclusion or your intuition that you've received in the form of downloads from working with these substances in terms of what the nature of consciousness is. And just to sort of give you one prompt, I heard you say, I think it was on Joe Rogan's podcast, talking about the brain possibly itself, not as, you know, the source of consciousness, but it's more sort of like a radio tuner that's interpreting it. And I'm wondering if you could expound on that. Yeah, exactly. So again, the the sort of the philosophical question of the age is, is consciousness essentially an epiphenomenon of the brain? Is the consciousness a reflection of neural activity? And, you know, not something, or is the brain more like a detector of a signal, which is built into the structure of reality? And the brain is a detector and an interpreter. It's not simply that it detects the signal, it's, it's more like a computer than a television set, right? Television set, you know, detects the signal and transmits that. Well, it goes through quite a bit of processing too to get a picture on the screen. A computer might process that signal in many different ways. And what is eventually presented to the observer, in this case, the self, has been massaged, you know, in a number of significant ways from the raw data. We never get close to the raw data. You know, I mean, there may be instances where we do, but, you know, it's very hard to say. I mean, sometimes on high doses of DMT, I can get the impression that, you know, we are looking at the raw datum of whatever it is in the in the reality continuum that generates consciousness assuming that that's what it is you know and it's not completely coming from from within the brain you know it's it's frustrating to explore all these concepts because the more you explore them the further away you get from certainty you know you you say what conclusions have you drawn and I have to say, <laughs> I'm as confused as ever, if, if not more confused, you know. I am less sure each time that I understand what is going on. And finally, you have to just throw up your hands and say, I don't know what the hell is going on, really. I mean, if we're honest, we have to say that. Yeah, that was really my experience of working in particular with ayahuasca. So I'd been doing you know, psychedelics, you know, for 20 years, it was something that I did a few times a year and mainly mushrooms or LSD, but, and I tried synthetic DMT at one point, but it was really going very deep with ayahuasca on a number of occasions in May that really shook to the core a lot of my firmly held views about the way I thought the universe worked, my mind worked, and yeah, I've heard you say before, you know, what these, what ayahuasca and other substances can teach you too, is you just don't know shit. You think you know shit, but you don't know shit. And 
that was really the experience I had. It was above all a total humbling, you know, of what I really don't know. And I appreciate you just being honest and sharing that, especially in your profession as an academic and a scientist. I think there's a real... I should be careful I say that because I think a lot of scientists are very careful too in saying what they know and don't know. But a lot of times there's a real pressure to pretend in our society that we do know that we're an expert. Yeah, well, and exactly. And science is prone to this. Like you say, there are a lot of scientists who are honest about it. But we're so used to using this language in everyday discourse that when we start to talk about this in a, you know, precise way it's very easy to use these terms without really thinking about it but these experiences demand that we do think about it and what is really going on so i mean ayahuasca is the perfect antidote for arrogance you know because it will say really it'll bring home the fact that you really don't know shit you know and so there's no room for arrogance here what there is room for is is humility and acknowledging that you don't know shit and then a willingness to pay attention without really you know without demanding conclusive answers because i don't know if they're out there you know science science is a way of thinking science is a way of constructing models of processes and phenomena it's a way of constructing hypotheses about the way that you think nature is you know some phenomenon and then you can see if your hypothesis holds up against the available data you can never prove your hypothesis you can only say we cannot yet disprove it and that's a key that's a key difference. You have to be able to say all models are provisional. They explain a phenomenon, a part of nature, as far as they go. But there are always aspects that they don't explain. And, you know, new data may show up tomorrow, next week, 50 years from now, that completely demolishes your hypothesis. And you have to start over. You have to modify it. That is the true function of, uh, you know, that is how science should be practiced. You know, that's not how it is practiced very often because people get very invested in their hypotheses and their constructs. And now, you know, science is a human activity like any other. So it's all tied up with, you know, money and grants and, and all the things you have to do to be a successful scientist and you know if you want to play that game and be successful you built your reputation on a certain set of discoveries and and so on and and suppositions and you've gotten to a certain point and if somebody says well all that's wrong you know you're reluctant to let that go you know you can oh well okay i guess i'll give my grant money back and fire my graduate students and and go meditate on a mountaintop somewhere. You know, we're just not inclined to do that. And yet sometimes that's the honest thing to do is to just say, really, I'm flummoxed. You know, I just don't know the answer. 
to me, that's not depressing. To many people, that might be depressing. But to me, it's a message that we don't know so much. And that's, that's a good thing. That means that there's a lot more that we can learn. And that's really what science is about. In the end, science is about the search for truth. It's about the search for understanding how nature is. You know, it's a way of asking very structured, very specific questions of nature and getting answers back that you can verify within limits. And you can say, well, as far as we can tell, given all the available data, this is the way it is. You know, I mean, you know, scientists, I mean, my wife criticizes me for this. She says, you're always, you'll never just say something. And you're always hedging your bets. And yes, that's true. That's my scientific training. I'm always saying, you know, considering all the data we have, it's probably this. But I'm not going to come down and say, well, this is absolutely the truth. Because we can't ever say that. Which seems to be what a lot of really good science, honest scientists do, you know, because <laughs> you're very careful about what we can know and not know and drawing conclusions from the data. Because they've actually thought about this. I've been raving too much, but that's the point. Well, no, yeah. I'd love to build on your idea and your larger message. And I'm really thinking about it in the larger context of Western historical thought. You know, specifically, I'm thinking about how Western thought and societies have evolved into this kind of world dominant power and everything that came along with it. You know, capitalism technological progress, scientific progress, you know, it's all tied up together. But if you're going back to a couple of the key thinkers really early on, I think Socrates, right, who was so famous for saying the only thing I know is that I don't know nothing, and Jesus Christ being another big one, you know, regardless of whether one considers himself Christian or not, clearly he's a very influential figure. And the message of those two people were very much about Humility, you know, it's about not having ego. And this is something that's mirrored in a lot of other philosophers and spiritual traditions from around the world, whether it's Buddha or Lao Tzu. And somewhere along the way, you know, we had that tradition, but that has very much, you know, gotten lost. I mean, what really sort of took root was, you know, more of what Nietzsche talked about, it's almost knowledge as a form of the will to power. And that is just so pervasive. It just seems people are, are very, I'm very conscious of this because I live in Asia where people are much more humble. And there are many things that I love about Western culture, but people are really not comfortable resting in a space of not knowing. People really feel a need to project themselves as a sort of expert. You mean in the West? In the West, in the West, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're not comfortable with ambiguity. And and you left out another important, important personage in Western philosophy, which I think is the source of a lot of our problem in thinking about these Are you going to say Descartes? Of course I'm going <laughs> to yes, say. Yes, for sure. Say more. <laughs> well, so he's the one. So Asia didn't have this as part of its philosophical 
noetic traditions. Asians are very much more, you know, comfortable with the idea that there really is not a boundary between the self and the other. You know, it's the old we are all one perception, you know, which we have to take high doses of drugs to get there in, in the West. But we are all one. This is, you know, I, I am you, you are he, and we're all part of this this cosmos. There is no separation. Descartes comes along and he starts throwing up fences, right? And he's the one that really came up with the idea, well, there's an inside and there's an outside. And, you know, we can talk about what's outside, not really what's inside, and set up this dualism. And this dualism, while useful in some ways in thinking about some things, has really poisoned Western consciousness, you know, implying that there is a separation between the self and the other. It's an illusion. It's a useful one sometimes, but he, but you know, that is accepted as axiomatically true. And so I think it poisons, you know, or at least makes clear thinking about these issues more difficult for us Westerners. You know, we're so used to thinking about this in terms of what goes on inside and outside. It's not even clear these terms really have any meaning, you know, but he has set it up to be that way. So so it makes it hard for us to think clearly about this stuff. Totally. And not only inside versus outside, you know, which is very problematic and which is something that the Buddha in particular, I think, really did a good job of demonstrating as largely an illusion. But very much even within the body, it's the mind and the head versus the rest of the body or the notion that the mind is only located in the head. I mean, you talked earlier about serotonin. And I mean, you can elaborate on this because I don't have a strong scientific background, but I know serotonin receptors are located throughout the body. In particular, there are many serotonin receptors in your gut, right? Which really undermines the notion that we're walking around with this experience of I'm up here somewhere behind the eyes. we, We may feel that subjectively, but the notion that that is actually a product of something that bears close resemblance to reality is really an illusion. And I think that even from what we know based on science, that we know that's pretty much BS, yet we're stuck in this model that Descartes perpetuated between mind and body. Yeah, well, we're so used to thinking this way. And this is very difficult for people to get their heads around that, you know, actually you're in a hallucination. I mean, you are the director, producer, and star of your own movie. And it's something that the brain has had to do as as an adaptation in order to move through the world, you know, And, and because we already know from neuroscience that much of what the brain does is is filter things out, you know. We have these very complex sensory gating mechanisms, which are upregulated and downregulated all the time. If we didn't have that, we would just be overwhelmed. You know, like our, our perception would be a blooming, buzzing confusion, as I think uh, James Joyce called it, and you wouldn't be able to function. You know, the brain kindly 
moves most things into the background or suppresses them entirely or at least puts them you know on the back burner in a sense so that you can pay attention to what's right in front of you you know so that you're ready when that saber-toothed tiger or whatever comes through the forest to attack you your your attention is there you know and not on you know the cool things the leaf cutter ants are doing in the background that's not relevant to your survival psychedelics are tools that let you disrupt that whole relationship temporarily and that's why it's important you know that's really the the you know the essential thing about set setting you know if you're going to take a psychedelic you need to be sure you're in a place where you don't have to worry about these real so-called real world issues like saber-toothed tigers like police like you know how to keep your car on the road <laughs> this kind of stuff you know you're not equipped to deal with that in those states and so if you can get yourself in that situation where you don't have to worry about that, then you can let your guard down and sort of open yourself up and, and see, you know, what's coming in, what's coming onto the screen of your attention, right? Without saying it's coming from outside or inside for the moment, but just, just what, what is there? What comes up for you? And they're great tools to, to do that, they let you step outside of your reference frame temporarily, which can be very useful, I think, because, you know, through many different mechanisms, we build these, you know, we, we build this, this artificial reality, and then we're sort of like robots moving through it. You know, we're puppets, we're pulling our own strings. And it's nice to be able to give that up just relax into it and say, I have no role to play. I have no volition. I can just let it happen. And then you, you see many things about phenomena that you never see, that you just don't notice before, you know, because you're programmed not to see those things most of the time. And that's why psychedelics so you know, it's, it's a trivial thing to say. It's not been said very often, but I think it's true that telescopes are to astronomy, psychedelics are to the study of consciousness, what telescopes are to astronomy. And that's very true if you think about it. They are tools, lenses, if you will, through for examining the world in ways that you never were able to do before. And so you you notice things about, you know, it's almost like we can't say it, but about reality or about that particular reality that you're experiencing. If you open up to it, you notice aspects to it that normally you just you just don't. And so that's the value of them. And then when you turn that around and you you apply that same lens to yourself, you know, that's where the therapeutic aspects come in, because you can look at yourself outside of this content context of of habits and assumptions and so on. And you can look at yourself outside your reference frame. And then I think, you know, it, it's helpful to look at things like addiction and so on.
because these are these are habitual behaviors. If you can step outside them temporarily and take a fresh look, you can get insight into them and what you might do to to change that behavior. You know, people say this is very common psychedelics or whatever, but people say, you know, I hope that ayahuasca can heal me or psilocybin can heal me. They are not going to do any of this. You know, you are going to do it yourself. All of the healing comes from you. All these substances do is sort of give you the the power to to do that for yourself. Let's talk about this a little more, especially with respect to ayahuasca. One thing I've heard you say before is how you definitely have an intuition that the purging process is part of the healing process with ayahuasca, which certainly makes a lot of sense to me, as I know many other people who have worked with ayahuasca. Wouldn't that purgative aspect that's clearly coming from the plant be an example of the way that the plant itself is doing something to you as opposed to just coming from you? That's actually a good a good question because you do have sometimes not everyone purges on ayahuasca and sometimes you have a choice, you know, whether or not to purge. That usually is how it is with me. I can usually choose to purge or some sometimes I don't have a choice and it's just going to happen. And I feel better afterwards. And, and if I choose to purge, it's usually for the same reason. It's like, okay, you could hold it in, but if you purge, you'll feel better after. And so I make that choice. I think that, I mean, that's a very physical thing. It's not that the, that the drug is without effect. It, it is, it has an effect on, on the body for sure. And sometimes you, you really don't have a choice. I mean, many people... Who take it they feel like they have to purge and they should just expect that they shouldn't resist that that's part of the of the cleansing in the traditional sense and also you know it, it just seems to be built into the physiology of the thing ayahuasca is maybe for that reason ayahuasca is more cathartic sometimes than these other things i mean i've i've used the cathartogens sometimes and people have asked me, you know, when it comes to perhaps developing a, a formulation of ayahuasca that is that is good for a clinical trial and all that, can't we make something that doesn't make you purge? Yeah, you probably can, but you shouldn't. It, purging is important. You need to taste ayahuasca. This this is something that sets ayahuasca, I think, apart from some of these other things. It's as much a medicine for the body as it is the mind. You know, it doesn't only work on the cerebral level. It works on a very visceral, physical level. And there are a lot of things in it besides the alkaloids that are that are active and, and ultimately good for you. And I would say qualitatively, that is something that sets ayahuasca apart too from something like psilocybin, which is so, which is similar. But psilocybin for me is ethereal and cerebral and not really all that much about the physical body. Ayahuasca is very down to earth and earthy. I mean, it's such a bloody plant. 
you know, you can sense its rivetness in the earth. And the effect, I think, kind of brings us close to that. And, you know, and, and it does put you through physical changes that some of these other other things don't. And, you know, I think the, I think that if you, if you engineered a, 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 an extra, you know, an ayahuasca that didn't cause purging, you would be eliminating part of its therapeutic spectrum, I guess is one way to say it. It's part of the deal. Purging is part of the deal with ayahuasca. Yeah, that makes sense to me. At least that's how I feel. I, I you know. For sure. There's so many unique things about ayahuasca. I mean, gosh, there are a couple of, yeah. there are a couple of things I want to say here. One is that, yeah, about this notion of it being a plant. I mean, okay, if we were to s- simply examine things from a neuroscientific perspective, and, and please correct me on this where, I, where you think I'm wrong, but if we're looking at DMT synthetically taken versus ayahuasca as a brew, a neuroscientist might say, well, DMT is the psychoactive component. It's roughly doing the similar thing on the brain and it'll have roughly similar effects. And of course, you have to account for the fact, you know, the pharmacology, of course, different drugs hit you different ways, depending on how you ingest them. If you smoke them, if you inject it, if you eat it, of course that matters, but still there's something that seems to be so fundamentally different about the ayahuasca experience versus even a synthetic DMT experience that the neuroscientific explanation is very unsatisfying to me. And if you could talk about what you, what you think that is, that extra kind of component about ayahuasca that really sets it apart. From other psychedelics? I mean, no, just as a scientist, I mean, like, why is ayahuasca so different than even synthetic DMT? And if it's not, feel free to disagree, but... Well, I mean, obviously, the most obvious difference is, you know, pharmacokinetics, right? I mean, it's orally active. The experience is prolonged over several hours as opposed to smoking DMT. It's just a few minutes. So that's the most obvious difference. But then you can, you know, you can mix synthetic beta carbolines and synthetic DMT and you will get an orally active mixture. It's not like ayahuasca. My, my own experiences with such preparations, which are called pharmawasca sometimes, you know, is that it's not the same. I mean, it, it's interesting. It is not the same. It, for one thing, it doesn't cause purging. And it doesn't seem to have the emotional impact that ayahuasca does. At least when I took this preparation, it was amazing. It was, it was interesting how artificial, well, it was artificial in a certain way. But it, it, you know, there was no sense of a connection to any living being. There was no sense of, you know, it was like it was like watching a movie, you know, and like watching a movie, I could watch it. It was fascinating, but I was essentially emotionally disconnected from it. You know, it didn't really have an impact on me in that way. I was watching it in, with the same sort of detached curiosity that you might watch a movie, even though, you know, there was a, 
there was an intelligence to it. There was a sense of an entity, communication. And, you know, this voice kept telling me, this is the reality generator. You're looking at the raw data that uh, out of which reality is made. And I, I, I could see this thing, which I called the DMT jewel. And it was like looking at a many dimensional object that was constantly changing. You know, it was very interesting how how separate I felt from it. Well, ayahuasca is anything but that. You know, if you let yourself be receptive to it, I mean, we can all resist it. But if you let yourself open up to it, it's very intimate. And, you know, I mean, rightly or wrongly, whether it's a right interpretation or wrong, many people experience it as a feminine entity, you know, and, and I do too, without making a judgment as to whether that's, again, real or not. I experience it that way, so it's real to that extent. I do too, and it seems to be very common. <laughs> it seems to be very common, but how much of that is cultural overlay and expectation? And, and you know, we, we're conditioned to think that it's going to be like that. Is it, is it just confirmation bias? I, I don't know. To me, I'll give, an ex- I'll give an example of something. Okay, so I didn't know this about one particular thing about ayahuasca, and then I experienced it on the medicine. So one common experience among people, it seems to be on ayahuasca, is that, which is different from other psychedelics, is that people very commonly report being incarnated as an animal, right? And specific kinds of animals, you know, whether it's the snake or the big cat is another one. And there was one night in my retreat, there were eight ceremonies over two weeks. And one particular night is probably like the fourth or fifth night. You know, I experienced myself as all these different forms of nature's intelligence. I was, you know, a blade of grass, then an ant, then a snake, then, then a tiger or a jaguar, like a big cat. And it really felt, it's obviously impossible to describe to anyone who hasn't done it because it's such a crazy notion to experience yourself as metamorphosizing into a jaguar, but it was the most visceral feeling. And ever since I've just totally felt connection to other animals and other things in nature. And the very next day when I shared my experience with people of the 18 people on the retreat, two thirds of the other people said that night in particular, they experienced the exact same things and same animals, snakes, ants, jaguars. And that kind of thing There was no way that could have happened because I didn't even know about it before to have confirmation bias. And it's such a common report that it just seems, I'm a very skeptical person, but it really, it seems to defy a lot of what I know about (laughs) logic. (laughs) Yes, Yes, it does. But intuitively it feels true. Like, what do you make sense? How do you make sense of that, Dennis? I I don't, you know, <laughs> I just, this is what it is, you know, I, I mean, it's like telepathy, it's like these group shared experiences 
do happen on other psychedelics, but I think they happen particularly on ayahuasca. And as you say, people get into this space. And so this is an argument that, you know, in favor of the idea that your mind is a receiver, not a generator of these things. You tap into some kind of a cosmic uh, FM station and everybody's getting more or less the same signal, you know, and you're experiencing it together collectively. And I think this is just ayahuasca's way of reminding us that we just don't know shit. You know, I mean, it seems to be, that seems to be an important lesson. You know, I mean, it's like this, because it, it always comes up, just this thing, sometimes it, it, it literally will say that, you know. Other times it's more subtle. It just says, remember how little you know. Remember how shaky your assumptions are about virtually everything. And, you know, don't get full of yourself, cowboy, because you don't know what's going on. And moreover, neither does anybody else. So, you know, this is a reminder of that. It calls for humility to accept that, you know. I wish that more people could have that experience because a lot of the problems that we have in the world today are due to people that think they have it all figured out, you know. And not only do they have it figured out for them, they have it figured out for you too. (laughs) That's the hard part, you know. And they will either by persuasion or by force, you know, force you to accept this crock of shit that they're dishing out, basically. And that's a problem. I mean, that's a big problem, I think. Religions are, you know, I mean, psychedelics are the antidote for religion. And I personally have little use for religion. I think that they're especially Western religion. I'm not talking about Buddhism and that sort of thing because they are more philosophies. They're, you know, but these these patriarchal religions that want to lay down all of these rules about how we're supposed to behave and more importantly, how we're supposed to think, you know, these are these are designed to keep people from thinking for themselves. You know, and and we need to encourage that and discourage the other side of it, you know, because there are legions and legions of people in the world who find thinking difficult for some reason, and they want nothing more than to be told what to think. These are the people that fall for religions and political movements and cults and all of this stuff, because for every, you know, hundred or a thousand people like this who just want to be told what to think, there is one or two people who will take advantage of that. Usually a male, usually somebody that sees that as an opportunity to, you know, manipulate people and start movements and all that. And this is dangerous. You know, we, we need more people who are willing to think for themselves, even though that's a painful thing. Totally. You know, it really is pure ego (laughs) in terms of religion or or many other ideologies too, political, economic, 
you know, all of these things, absolutely, all of these things. But people want, people love to be relieved of the responsibility of thinking, you know. And this is this is why religion is so comforting to so many people. It's like, oh, I don't have to worry about it anymore. All the answers are here, except except they're not, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's a fairy tale, and I would rather not be. You know, I would rather be given something that I feel is true, even though it's not comfortable and, and you know, just feel that it's honest. And what religion dishes out by and large is not honest. And, and it's basically harmful, I think, you know, because these are not spiritual institutions, you know, they are just like government and law and every other thing, they're, they're mechanisms for getting people to behave in certain ways that are not really, that doesn't really serve the individual's purpose. It serves the institution's purpose. You know, it's convenient for the institutions if you have all these mindless people following some doctrine, some dogma, some, you know, bunch of you know incorrect assumptions psychedelic are the antidote to this i'm definitely in agreement with you there and i I will say you know i've my thoughts on this have evolved a little bit and i'd be curious to hear your take so i i've had tons of issues with organized religion and, and it's similar views to you so i appreciate a lot of eastern religions and i'm uh, not only don't have an issue with them, I find a lot of value into them and I'm a student of Eastern religion, but I really have had a lot of problems with issues from the Abrahamic traditions. I mean, I think particularly Christianity and Islam have just caused a lot of problems historically. I mean, starting with just that need to convert everyone. I mean, that is, that's the root of conflict right there. And I, I've read right. some things more recently, you know, I've read more Jung and more Joseph Campbell And I've come to appreciate, you know, the esoteric traditions within these schools and certain people saying, well, you know, when you think about it, yes, that's wrong. They'll say I'm Christian or or I'm Muslim. And I I agree that's a problem. And those people who do that, they're really engaged in, in an adolescent form of thinking, right? They're stuck at a certain adolescent psychological level, but they, they argue that the baby shouldn't be thrown out with the bathwater, you know, that there's value in myths and things like that. And I do see the value in myth, but I, I guess the, the issue I have is I'm very not optimistic, I should say pessimistic about people's, most people's ability to come to arrive at a nuanced understanding of text. I mean, even for many people who receive an education, I think the tendency of many people is to read things literally rather than figuratively. So I'm curious on your take on the role of, is there value in religion as metaphor and what you think of that argument that someone like Joseph Campbell might put forward? Yeah, I I do. I think there's value in religion as metaphor and as myth. I mean, the key word you said it is nuance you know we don't as a culture in western society at least we don't do nuance very well 
you know, you don't hear much uh, in the mass media or anywhere else that is nuanced. And I think people miss a lot. You know, there's a very black and white kind of mentality. And we see this, especially in our political conflicts, but also in, you know, religious interpretation. It's kind of my way or the highway. You know, there's not much room for nuance. I think it would be useful if we could bring a little more uh, perspective like that into the discussions about religion and and say, you know, these things are, you know, in some way, all myths are true, right? They're true on a psychological, on a, you know, that kind of level. But literally, they're not true. I mean, who really believes the Adam and Eve, you know, scenario? I mean, it's it's interesting to think about it. I don't think that's how it happened. It is interesting that, you know, I mean, Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit. They ate the fruit of knowledge. Well, clearly, that's a psychedelic of some kind that they ingested. I mean, I don't know how else you would interpret it. They They partook of the fruit of knowledge and suddenly you know, they were shown that you know their sort of naive innocent view of the way things were was completely shattered and they were not supposed to know that right so there is value in myth and even religious parables it's just to accept it as as literal truth is a big mistake i think and that leads to fundamentalism and it's like and fundamentalism is basically, you know, it's a stance of, of saying, you know, my mind is made up. Don't confuse me with facts or any argument. My mind is made up, you know, and I'm not going to. So it's a fear-based kind of rigidity that, that people construct around themselves because they really don't want to, you know, face up to the fact that it's, it's not, it just ain't so, you know? And so this clouds thinking. I mean, this this is an impediment to clear thinking. And I think that, you know, we need more of that and less of this dogma-based kind of, you know, perception. I mean, we, we just, and really that's what psychedelics are in a sense. They are tools for learning how to think in a certain way. The beautiful thing about psychedelics is, among many beautiful things, but to my mind, it's the fact that it does not require faith. You do not have to be a believer to benefit from a psychedelic experience. In fact, it's better if you're not a believer. You know, you can be as skeptical as you want. You don't have to accept any articles of faith. All you have to do is accept is to have the courage to put all that behind you and lift the cup to your lips or, or lift the pipe to your lips, take it. And then you're free to make of it whatever you will, you know, and there'll be plenty of people who want to tell you what it means, what it should mean and so on. But ultimately you have the power to say, my psychedelic experience is unique to me. And this is what I think about it. You know, so it's a very empowering thing. You know, it does not require faith. It just requires courage. Right. I'm curious, you know, as someone who, because I've heard you, 
you know, talk openly before about your issues with organized religion. And I definitely appreciate that. That's part of the work I'm trying to do on this show is to have an honest conversation about religion. I, I do think there's some good to be extracted from it, but I also think to do that, we've got to really own up and be honest about a lot of the problems with religion. And not sure if you're familiar with the work of Sam Harris, if you know him at all, but he's someone I think who's really, you know, helped to promote a conversation. And although I don't agree maybe with every way he'd phrase something, I find myself agreeing with a lot of the points he's making. And I'm curious about as whether it's an academic on a college campus or whether it's in, in the psychedelic community, the kind of reception and or blowback or pushback you might receive when you talk about your criticism in, of organized re- religion. And as sort of a specific prompt, here's where I'm going with this. Uh, you know, on the left, it's there are obviously a lot of people who have issues with organized religion. And so that might be well received many times. But it seems that it's totally okay to criticize Christianity and to talk about how funny the Book of Mormon was that you saw or to rip on Scientology. Yet the moment you criticize Islam, there is very quick blowback on the left. And the reverse is true on the right. You know, it's it's okay to criticize Islam, but not so much Christianity. And I'm curious what kind of pushback, if any, you've received on that in which ways you've experienced political correctness as a kind of hindrance to honest intellectual discussion on this topic? Well, I, I'm an equal opportunity critic, I guess you could say. Yeah, I criticize Islam. I criticize Christianity. I'm not sure why there should be, you know, why there should be more blowback about against criticizing in Islam than Christianity. I mean, they're both examples of the, these completely delusional and, you know, not life-affirming religions, which are basically bludgeons to beat people into certain ways of, of behavior. Neither one of them are concerned with bringing people closer to any genuine spiritual experience. Heaven forbid, you know, with with exceptions, you know, like the mystical sects of Christianity where real experience of mis- real mystical experience was kind of the goal and the same in Islam, Sufism and this sort of thing. All of these have to do with essentially putting yourself in the extreme conditions of physical stress to induce through biochemistry mystical experiences. I mean, and sometimes through drugs, you know, but by and large, the the doctrines of Islam and Christianity, I don't see that they're life affirming, you know, in fact, in fact, Christianity is so devoted to denying biology, right? I mean, we, we've had this conversation before. And what are the things that get people close to their own natures and close to the divine, right? What are those things? Oh, say more. I thought you were going to unpack it. Are you asking me? Well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, go ahead. Drugs and rock and roll. <laughs> really, Amen. Literally. Think about it. You know, most people, okay, so suppose they don't take drugs, right? 
the closest they get to a transcendental experience on the physical level. These are all essentially biological functions. Sex can be a transcendent experience, you know, if it's properly approached and all that. It's certainly important biologically. We wouldn't argue otherwise. You know, it's what drives evolution and gene transfer and all that. These religions deny sexuality. It's completely condemned. You know, drugs, well, drugs are also the idea of intoxication, loss of control. These things are condemned. But then we have to remember we're made of drugs. Every experience we have is a drug experience. They don't like to acknowledge that, but that is in fact true. Where does rock and roll fit in? Okay, oscillation. Biological systems are oscillating systems. They are rhythmic systems. You know, you have a body and it looks like an object, but actually it's a process, you know, process of metabolism. When rhythm ceases in a biological system, it's suddenly quite boring. And the reason it's boring is that it's dead. You know, dead systems have no rhythm. Living systems are oscillating constantly. And these are the three things that these Abrahamic religions, you know, condemn most vehemently and deny most vehemently. You know, you must, you know, these are the, and these are just like fundamental characteristics of living beings. So they deny biology and by extension, they deny nature. And this is why these systems of thought are so poisonous to us because Christianity says nature is, you know, your reward is in the next life, right? So you don't have to value nature. You know, nature's here to serve you. Nature's here to exploit. You own it. You, you can dominate it. You don't have to respect it. You don't have to revere it. It's something to be used up and tossed away, you know, and now we're seeing the effect of, you know, this kind of mindset, the things we're doing to nature. This is what they, the, you know, the Abrahamic religions and especially Christianity has done to us. They poisoned us and they've created this perception that we don't have to, you know, that we're apart from nature, which is not true, that we're superior to nature, which is not true, that nature belongs to us to do with us as we wish, which is not true. And that's the barrier we have to overcome if we're going to save this planet. We have to realize we're not running the show. And this is what this is the message that ayahuasca brings home again and again and again. Remember, you monkeys are not running this show. So let's elaborate on this because I think this is a really interesting point. You know, I heard someone the other day who's, you know, well versed in the psychedelic field say that the difference between ayahuasca and other psychedelics is that ayahuasca has an agenda. And he was referring to this idea that it seems to be ayahuasca seems to want to wake people up to the idea that there is serious ecological destruction on the planet. This is translated into the fact that we see a lot of people who work with ayahuasca end up quitting their, their jobs and end up doing something very green about preserving the environment. 
Why do you think that is? And what do you think that says about what the nature of ayahuasca is and what makes it distinct from other psychedelics? Well, I would agree. I, uh, you know, I mean, I think the other psychedelics can lead to these perceptions as well. I, I don't dismiss them, but ayahuasca does seem to be the one that has somehow gotten itself onto a global stage, you know, and is propagating this message around the world, you know, and I don't know why that is. I, I do think that all of these things are in some ways ambassadors you can think of it of this guy in mind this this planetary intelligence and they're reaching out to the monkeys by whatever means possible and they're trying to get people to to wake up yeah essentially to wake up and subsequently to wise up right because this is the other side of the equation there is this disjunct between our cleverness and our wisdom. You know, as a species, we're extremely clever. We can devise these technologies, but the, you know, which could have a huge impact even on the survival of life on the planet. And we know this, and yet we're manipulating these technologies. So the question becomes, where do we get the wisdom to use these things? in a in wise ways in beneficial ways and this brings up another you know another point which is the moral dimension comes out of human behavior you know drugs atomic energy genetic engineering artificial intelligence all of these things potentially very dangerous not inherently good or evil you know the good or evil comes from the use that we make of these things. And this is something that is hard to sometimes for people to, to integrate this idea that, you know, it's human behavior that is the source of good or evil. These other things are just tools and in not inherently, they just don't inherently have moral qualities. I believe, you know, even ayahuasca, I mean, you can't, Ayahuasca can be misused a lot, and it is. You know, I mean, there are some of these Brazilian religions, they're okay. Well, they're, they're benign, they're beneficent, whatever. But they are religions, so they have their doctrines, and they, you know, and just by that very nature, they're, they're dubious. And a lot of places, you know, ayahuasca can be you know, some of these ayahuasca communities, for example, in Hawaii, I've heard about that there's so much ayahuasca around, everybody is just sloshing in it. There's not a lot of thoughtful, respectful use going on. So any anything can be perverted. Anything can be used in the wrong way, you know, and, and so it's up to us to have this, this moral clarity about how we're going to use these tools and we in order to have that we have to wake up you know we have to wake up and then we have to wise up that's the thing you know we're not a wise species not yet anyway but these these plant teachers are trying to nudge us along in that direction i think so you talk about 
the plants basically as a form of intelligence that have the power to wake us up. And this is something back to the Descartes discussion and how Westerners think about the mind and intelligence that really frustrates the Western mind is thinking about plants having intelligence. I've heard you talk a little bit about this and even say that plants have a nervous system or because they don't have a central nervous system, they can't have intelligence. Can you talk about what in plant intelligence is and how, what can we sort of verify in terms of what we know in terms of how plants have intelligence, how you think about it and how you see that in a larger holistic context of a sort of Gaian earth consciousness? Right. Well, I mean, plants and you know, and the Gaian ecosystem as a whole, I think, has intelligence. So I talk about how plants make this vast variety of chemistries, of chemical compounds called secondary compounds, right? And most of the, I mean, the psychoactive drugs from plants are secondary compounds, but plants don't stop there. They have many, many kinds of of molecules that they're not essential for life because they don't occur in all organisms, but plants spend plenty of chemical metabolic energy to make these things. What are these things doing? They are messenger molecules. They're the language of plants. A famous botanist said once, plants substitute biosynthesis for behavior. Plants are very good chemists. They can spin this stuff out because they've mastered photosynthesis, which is probably the central mystery of life, because this is what, I mean, it's not really a mystery. We know how it works, but the fact that, you know, sometime way back, organisms figured out how to take sunlight, carbon dioxide and water and make organic compounds. I mean, that's some pretty heavy alchemy in a sense. And because they have mastered photosynthesis, they're not really limited in terms of their chemical resources because there's lots of energy in, in the form of sunlight and they can do these things. So plants have created these networks on the ecosystem level that are tied together by these chemical messengers. And there's plenty of studies on this now, like the mycelial networks, the fungal plant mycorrhizae. These are symbiotic associations between plants between their roots in the soils and mycelium in the soil. These are called mycorrhizal associations. And there's been interesting work done in old growth forests, for example, that these subterranean mycorrhizal networks are like a nervous system for the forest. You know, they're signal transduction mechanisms. And if something, you know, at the edge of the forest, a pathogen, for example, a bark-eating beetle or something starts to attack the forest, that attack will be perceived throughout the forest in a very short time. And the forest will respond by churning out chemicals that are repellents to this invader. And it's it's not like there's any one brain anywhere, any entity that's controlling this, but the whole forest, the whole network reacts 
like an intelligent being to protect itself. You know, and there are other instances like that, and there are instances of how vining plants find the the optimal way to grow among various possibilities. They they find the op the shortest path to the canopy of the forest because they know, you know, and some of this looks like tropisms and that sort of thing, and it is, but then a lot of animal behavior is tropisms as well. I think overall, you can say that, you know, first of all, we have to define what is intelligence. One way of looking at it is intelligence is the plants are able to optimize their relationship with everything else in the environment, to optimize their well-being and ability to thrive in an environment. Is that not intelligence? Sure. That certainly makes sense to me, definitely. And also thinking about intelligence. I mean, we're, not, we're not very good at it. And we think we're right. intelligent, but we have a hard time. Right. <laughs> you know? And also thinking about intelligence as a form of networks. I mean, even within, you could think about the brain, right, as a form of, of networks. Exactly. The brain is a very concentrated bunch of tissue whose main function is signal transduction. The you know, neurotransmission being, you know, one of the obvious ways of signal transduction. Signal transduction is a term that has a specific meaning. It, it is about sending signals, but it's specifically about sending chemical signals. Signal transduction implies that a molecule is released somewhere, in, say, in the brain, it travels from the releasing cell to the receiving cell where it binds to a receptor. So there's a physical chemical interaction that takes place. Okay, so take that very idea and expand it to the ecosystem level. The ecosystems are also regulated and they find their homeostasis, this equilibrium through these complex systems of chemical messenger exchange and the plants are are running the show this is the this is the way they do it this is the way they direct it through chemistry you know the language of plants is chemistry and this is how they regulate the ecosystem and everything in it is there a brain that is somehow you know sitting in the control room and and controlling this, pulling the lever somewhere, as we tend to think of ourselves, probably not. It's probably just a holistic response to the situation where the plant, the community, actually, the community of species will use signal transduction processes to optimize the situation for the entire community, you know, and that's intelligence, it seems to me. That is a kind of intelligence. You know, and then we come along and we, you know, we're very good at disrupting these processes, which is because we're not intelligent or not as intelligent as we think we are. That's where the, the hubris comes in, you know. And we're very also, you know, as a species, we're very brain-centric. It's like, if it doesn't have a brain, it can't be intelligent. Right. Brains are overrated. 
Well, to to build on a point you made, you know, I would say to any listeners out there who are a little skeptical on, you know, maybe thinking that the people who are into psychedelics are trying to undermine this view of intelligence and that the brain's the center of things, I would point out that a lot of neuroscientists, people who study the brain are increasingly skeptical of the idea that humans really have free will. I mean, Sam Harris, who we mentioned earlier, is one person who's written about this. And I'd encourage anyone who's interested in the topic, pick up his book, Free Will. It's a short and pretty accessible read. You know, it's it. we yeah. have the experience, the subjective experience of feeling like we have free will. But what feels like we are making these conscious, independent choices are in fact set in motion by a series of events that were already triggered. And in fact, we really didn't have control over the decision over which we thought we had control. And in fact, it's convenient for the system to make you feel like you have free will. Oh, it mitigates fear. Yeah, it mitigates fear. It's convenient for the system. So the, the system that is really running things is far cleverer than you are because you would always fall for this delusion about free will. Now, I'm not saying that there is no such thing as free will, but I think we're, I mean, I would like to read that. I haven't read it, but I think we have much less than we would like to think, you know, whatever it means. You know, this has been a fascinating conversation. I don't know. We're going on two hours here. and Hour and a I half, think- and we should wrap up. You know, Dennis, I'd love to ask one parting question from you, if you can, and you can give a brief answer, and then we'll close by letting folks know where they can reach you. But, you know, I just wanted to ask something of you about microdosing, because it's really popular these days. And I noticed that the Hefter Institute, of which you are a co-founding member, correct? Right. Of, of yes. Hefter, right released a statement basically saying, you know, folks should just be a little cautious about microdosing because we don't have a lot of clinical trials yet. And in particular, they're sort of flagging concern about the fact that we know psychedelics activate the 5-H2B receptor. And we know there are other psych- or there are other drugs that activate that receptor that have been pulled from the prescription drug market because of the cardiac issues that it leads to. And I'm I'm wondering, do you have concerns about microdosing or psychedelic use leading potentially to cardiac issues? And if so, you know, what kind of, you know, at what sort of levels and frequencies would you sort of caution people to begin to be a little careful? Well, that's interesting. I I guess I wasn't in the room when they issued that memo. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't consulted about that. But there is possibly a concern because some of these serotonergic agents do cause cardiac problems. I think it has to do with valve malfunctions over time after chronic use, things like fenfluramine which is now off the market for this reason. It's mediated through the 5-HT2, the 5-HT1B receptor, I believe, which these psychedelics do interact with not as strongly as the 2A. I've never heard this before leveled against microdosing. I Really, I can't really speak to that. But now that you bring it up, I think this may be a concern 
because you do take them every day, unlike psychedelics, which you take rarely, you know. So I think these cardiac things are not an issue in the usual way that we take psychedelics. My criticism of microdosing used to be that, you know, these are for people who are afraid to actually take a psychedelic and get down and get the experience, you know. You know, so it's like they want to dip their toes in and say that they're microdosing. But in fact, they don't really want to get all the way into the luminous pool, as it were. And I think there's some truth to that. But then I was urged to, you know, try microdosing for a while. And someone gave me some LSD that was properly measured out. And I did try it for a while. And I, I got a, I got an effect, a very subtle effect. Maybe it's just a little bit more of a cognitive a boost in the morning. I was taking like five micrograms every two days or something. And I perceived that for a while and then it sort of faded away. And then I started taking 10 micrograms every other day and that was that boosted it. Then it sort of faded away. So I sort of lost interest in it. You know, I, I don't tell other people how they should do it. I think if people that benefit from microdosing, that's fine. Except for maybe there is a cardiac issue here. Did Hefter as a group put that out? They did, and it wasn't signed. So I don't know individually who really promoted it. Where did you find it? On the Hefter website? I came across... It is on the Hefter website. I think I first came across it on Twitter. Huh. But it is on the Hefter website, and I'll email you the link so you can have a look at it. Please do. I, I'm pretty sure I know where this came from. And, you know, from Brian Roth, actually, who's not with the Hefter, but very you know, respected serotonin guy. And I would like to read that because that's an aspect of microdosing I really haven't thought about before. I just kind of thought that, eh, why bother? You know, if you're going to take a psychedelic, take the damn psychedelic. Why do these baby doses? But if some people benefit from it, that's fine. But but they are they are something that one does all the time, you know, daily or every other day. So maybe there is some concern. Well, some people would say, and I think that's why Jim Fadiman says, you know, it's really only, you should really only do it twice a week. You know, it's once every four days and then you do it for five weeks and then you take minimum a week off. And part of that is to reset. So you don't have that tolerance come up. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, he's doing that with, you know, there there really aren't any control studies of microdosing as far as I Correct. Think. So Correct. it's his speculation. He's the the expert on it. I wonder what he would say about this serotonin toxicity issue. I actually asked him. I had coffee with him a couple days ago. Oh yeah? <laughs> yeah, and I, I asked Jim and and I'll get him on the show. He's hopefully gonna come on in a few months to talk about microdosing, including this question. I don't think he'd mind me sharing this because I'm sure he'd be public about this, but he basically said he's skeptical about it and part of it was and I'm not gonna make the argument well because I'm not a trained, you know, PhD and a scientist, but he basically had issues with the way that the question was phrased. And he basically said, if you look at it, it's very speculative in terms of what we can know and not know about any sort of substance in relation to 
other things when it's phrased that way. Right, right, exactly. And and it sounds like this was issued as a, you know, as a cautionary note, not that there's actually any clinical evidence one way or another about this at this time, but maybe there, there should be a study. So these kinds of questions can be answered. Totally. The mantra, we, we need more research is always a good thing. Right. For sure. And funding. Don't forget funding. And yeah, we need funding to do the research. Well, Dennis, on that note, I'm conscious of our time. So I'll, I'll wrap up by thanking you so much. And I want to give you a chance to let our listeners know about where they can find you on social media, any upcoming events, any of your books or anything else that you'd like to promote. Okay. Well, I have a few plugs. One of them is ESPD 50. I don't know if you know about that, but it's this conference that I helped organize in the UK in June. And it was a 50th anniversary commemorative conference in commemoration of the first. ESPD means Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. And the first conference of that kind was sponsored by National Institutes of Mental Health in 1967 in San Francisco. And the only benefit the taxpayers ever got out of that, it was a government-sponsored you know, sponsored conference, was a book that came out by the same, under the same name. Well, they were supposed to have follow-up conferences every 10 years. The war on drugs came along and it never happened. So for a long time, I've wanted to do an anniversary conference. So 2017 was the 50th anniversary. So ask people to go to ESPD50.com and they can, we're bringing out the original symposium from 1967 and the 2017 symposium as a box set, a collector's edition. They can order it from there and it will be coming out in January as a beautiful collector's edition for those that still treasure collecting books you know i mean i know it's very 20th century but then (laughs) so there's that and if they go to that site they can also go to the facebook page and they can we live stream this on facebook so if they want to look at any of the videos they can go to the facebook page under espd50 and look at all the videos uh presentations from the conference it's 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 free for the looking so some people will be uh and i'll I'll text you these things the other thing that people might be interested in is i do host ayahuasca retreats in peru about twice a year i've got a couple of them coming up in january and i'll send you the links to those if you know anybody that might want to register and come down. We'd love to see you. Hey, I might be one of those people. Well, I hope you (laughs) could come. I would love to have you. That would be fantastic. Can I ask, when is the other time of the year when you tend to have the retreat? Either late July or early August. Okay. Great to know. But right now in January, we have two retreats back to back, pretty much back to back. One from the 3rd to the 13th and the other one from the 17th to the 27th. And we have spaces in both, although not much. They're filling up. But I'll send you the links to all this, Adrian, when we get off here. Excellent. You can put those up on the site. And, yeah, I'd appreciate that. Gladly. 
Okay, well, it's been wonderful. You're a great interviewer, and I just had a great time. We could go on all night, but we, we can't. We can't do that. It'll... Thank you so much, Dennis. I had a blast. Me too. Absolutely. I'd love to come on anytime. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking consciousness.